0: Welcome to the Election Ride Home for Wednesday, November 13th, 2019. I'm your host, Chris Higgins, with a summary of election news. Today, Sanford drops out. A new poll shows Buttigieg doing great in Iowa. The Trump impeachment stuff in three minutes or less. Cotton's Democratic opponent drops out hours after the filing period ends. Who did and did not file for the Arkansas primary and what that might mean and the tentative schedule for the Senate impeachment trial is out. Here's what you missed today from the campaign trail. In a surprise move, former South Carolina Governor Mark Sanford dropped out of the Republican primary on Tuesday afternoon. He made the announcement in a brief speech. Reading from an article in The Post and Courier by Caitlin Byrd, quote, Standing outside the New Hampshire State House, surrounded by 15 members of the media and two staffers, The long-shot Republican closed down his campaign, some 65 days after it began. Holding an oversized trillion-dollar check to represent the national debt, Sanford said his singular focus in his 2020 bid had been to advance the debate on mounting government spending and addressing the deficit. But you've got to be a realist, said Sanford, who spoke for just shy of 16 minutes. Sanford had originally planned to be inside a statehouse office on Friday, to have his name added to the ballot in the first-in-the-nation primary. Instead, it is where his run ended, days after he vowed to spend all of November campaigning here, End quote. As always, when a candidate drops out, I play clips and recount highlights from the campaign, but Sanford wasn't in the campaign long enough to gather a whole lot of options. There's one clip that is particularly relevant, though. Sanford is, as I said, former governor of South Carolina, and that's one of the states where Republicans have canceled their primaries. There's a lawsuit underway to maybe undo that, but without the ability to run in that state, Sanford lost the key state he would rely on for support. Here's a clip of Sanford speaking to Fox News reporter Paul Steinhauser in late September about canceling Republican primaries. They are speaking in a diner, so it's noisy. Steinhauser speaks first. Listen in.
1: So, do you think the president, by trying to quash the competition,
0: is scared? I think somebody in his organization is scared, uh, which is why you quash these these, these nominating contests. Um, otherwise, it makes no sense because, again, if you have the chance to lock in the ninety percent, win and the world of politics. You do so. Well, Let's talk about percentages, because we got a brand new poll out last night from Fox News, uh, from my my, my colleagues over there, 86% for Donald Trump, 2% each for you and the two other primary challengers. So, I mean, realistically... Can he be beat in the primaries? We're at the beginning of that process. We'll find out. I mean, that, that that's that's what contests are about. What I'd say is, when I first ran for Congress, I was bump along at two uh, percent of the polls and ended up winning. When I first ran for governor against incumbent governor, I was bumping along at a low number and things begin to take off. You just never know in the world of politics. Reading once more from the Post and Courier quote. In a recent social media post, Sanford lamented being refused the opportunity to speak at a GOP candidate spaghetti dinner in Londonderry, New Hampshire. The reason? Fear of offending Trump supporters. The party is populated by some really great people, but it's underserved or misled by too many in leadership positions, and I think President Trump and his approach has exacerbated this, Sanford wrote, speaking mainly to supporters back in South Carolina. Are you kidding me? In a state where the motto is live free or die? Being scared of someone being offended because someone else had a different viewpoint at a small local county event? It mirrors the canceling of primaries, and it makes me ask, what has come of the Republican Party? End quote. A poll released yesterday gave a very promising result for Mayor Pete Buttigieg in Iowa. The poll was by Monmouth University and has a margin of error of plus or minus 4.6%. The pollsters were surveying likely Democratic caucus-goers. Okay, so what's the big deal? Well, the number one candidate is Buttigieg, with 22% of the vote. Behind him, but within the margin, are Biden at 19 and Warren at 18. Outside the margin, Sanders got 13, and nobody else broke into the double digits. So, this poll has had a lot of folks saying, basically, how did this happen? We've seen Buttigieg do reasonably well in Iowa polls before, but this is the first time we've seen him in the top spot. Well, there are a lot of ways to explain this. One of them was pointed out by Nate Silver of 538 on Twitter. He pointed out the net favorability ratings of the candidates over time. There's a table with those numbers in the poll results, and it shows that Buttigieg has an overall favorability rating of plus 63. That's steady with the last time this poll was run, back in August, and up quite a bit from the previous poll in April. Okay, so why does favorability matter? Well, in part because other top candidates have been losing ground in that department. In the trend from August, Warren and Biden are both down by double digits in their net favorability. Sanders is up by double digits, but still, nobody comes close to Buttigieg, and nobody is as stable as Buttigieg in that top ranking, at least compared to the previous poll in August. Oh, and just for kicks, Michael Bloomberg has a net minus 31 favorability rating, which is pretty rough. All right, so are there any grains of salt to take with this poll? The big one, aside from the margin, which is not unusual in any way, is the fact that Iowa voters still seem not to be super set on their first choice. Reading from the first paragraph of the Monmouth release, which does not carry a byline, quote, Buttigieg's gains since the summer have been across the board, with increasing support coming from nearly every demographic group. Regardless, less than one-third of likely caucus-goers say that they are firmly set on their choice of candidate, and most would not be too disappointed if they had to switch their support. End quote. So this matches up with polling I talked about last week. What it means for candidates in Iowa is that the field is still pretty much open, with the majority of voters still saying they are persuadable. That may be part of what is driving these last-minute entrants and the folks who are sticking around in the field even though their polling is so minimal right now. Maybe, somehow, lightning will strike and some super low-polling candidate will get 15% in Iowa. You just never know. And now, the impeachment news somehow presented in three minutes or less. Today, televised hearings began with testimony by George Kent and Bill Taylor, who appeared sitting side by side. Kent gave his prepared statement first, then Taylor gave his, then they got down to the Q&A. By the way, we also saw Representative Eric Swalwell, former candidate in the Democratic primary, on the House Intelligence Committee during these hearings. And seated next to him was Joaquin Castro, who is current candidate Julian Castro's twin brother. You can tell them apart because Joaquin is in Congress and has a beard. Okay, end of tangent. I'm going to read here from Joni Grieve, writing for The Guardian. Quote, George Kent acknowledged that, in 2015, he raised concerns about the appearance of a conflict of interest in Hunter Biden's work for the Ukrainian company, Burisma. However, the longtime diplomat pushed back against Republicans' suggestion that there may have been corruption involved in Biden's work with the company. In February 2015, I raised my concern that Hunter Biden's status as board member could create the perception of a conflict of interest, Kent said. Let me be clear, however, I did not witness any efforts by any U.S. official to shield Burisma from scrutiny, end quote. And next up was Bill Taylor. I'm just going to let him speak for himself. Here's a clip in which he puts Ukraine in the context of its ongoing war with Russia, which explains the importance of that military aid. Listen in.
1: Ukraine is on the front line in the conflict with a newly aggressive Russia. Second, even as we sit here today, the Russians are attacking Ukrainian soldiers in their own country and have been for the last four years. I saw this on the front line last week. The day I was there, a Ukrainian soldier was killed and four were wounded. Third, the security assistance we provide is crucial to Ukraine's defense and to the protection of the soldiers I met on the front line last week. It demonstrates to Ukrainians and Russians that we are Ukraine's reliable strategic partner. It is clearly in our national interest to deter further Russian aggression. And finally, as the committee is aware, I wrote that withholding security assistance in exchange for help with a domestic political campaign in the United States, would be crazy. I believed that then, and I believe it now.
0: We'll have more highlights from today's testimony on tomorrow's show. Also, the schedule for next week's public appearances is out. Rather than read you a huge list of names, I will just say there are currently eight people scheduled to testify in public next week, running from Tuesday through Thursday. And there might be even more. We had a surprise in Arkansas yesterday afternoon. Two hours after the end of the filing period for the Arkansas primary, Democrat Josh Mahoney dropped out of the Senate race. He had been the only Democrat to file, so he was the only major party competitor to incumbent Republican Tom Cotton. And by the way, thanks to listener Maddie, hey Maddie, for sending in this tip, otherwise I probably wouldn't have seen it because there was, you know, some other news today. Big news, you know. Anyway, Mahoney cited an unspecified family health concern as his reason for dropping out. In a statement, he wrote, quote, I would like to extend my deepest gratitude to all of those who have supported me during this race. It has been the honor of my life to be able to meet and visit with so many Arkansans over the last six months and hear their voices. It was my sincere hope to be their advocate in Washington, D.C., However, in this moment right now, I need to focus on my family and place their interests first. End quote. According to an article in the Arkansas Democrat Gazette by Hunter Field and John Moritz, this came as a surprise even to local Democrats. Reading from their article, quote, Democratic Party of Arkansas Chairman Michael John Gray said he was informed of Mahoney's exit from the race when somebody saw the post on Twitter. He said he had subsequently spoken briefly with Mahoney. Josh is a friend, and I hope everything is okay, Gray said. Gray added that DPA staff and legal advisors were having conversations with the Secretary of State's office over the possibility of finding a replacement for the race. End quote. So digging into the data on that Arkansas Senate race, there are a few notable factors. There are technically two challengers remaining, a Libertarian candidate and an Independent. I don't have any polling data, but no media I've seen has mentioned them as major factors in the race. There is one item that does jump out at me, though. Reading from the very last sentence of an Associated Press story by Andrew DeMillo, quote, Before he dropped out of the race, the state GOP said Tuesday it planned to file a complaint with the FEC against Mahoney that accused him of falsely listing himself as a small business owner on contribution records, end quote. They did in fact do that, and the text of that complaint is linked in the show notes. The other newsworthy item about this race is that according to FEC Records, Cotton had more than $4 million in cash on hand at the end of Q3. Mahoney had $25,000. So just saying, this would have been an uphill climb anyway. Next up, as I mentioned, the deadline to file for the Arkansas primary was midday on Tuesday. Candidates who want to be on that state's primary ballot needed to file by that deadline. So, okay, who did and did not actually get it done? Well, most of the Democrats remaining on my list of major candidates got it done. Plus, of course, Michael Bloomberg jumped in there too, and an Arkansas lawyer named Mosey Boyd got on the ballot as well. But the notable Democrat who did not file was Mayor Wayne Messam of Miramar, Florida. Now, you may remember Messam for the recent mix-up in Q3 fundraising filings where his campaign accidentally reported that he raised just $5 and spent $0. His name has also been simply left off of many recent polls, so rather than getting 0%, he just wasn't even asked about. Well, now that Messam has not filed in Arkansas, that's a signal that he may be ready to drop out. The other obvious possibilities for him not filing in the state are that he doesn't think he needs it to win, or that he simply doesn't have the ground operation to get the necessary signatures and pay the fee and show up to sign the paperwork. While this is speculation, I'm going to guess it's the latter, and at some point Messam will make it official. One more note while we're on this topic. Former Massachusetts Governor Deval Patrick did not file in Arkansas. So that means if he does jump into the race, he has already missed two state primaries, Alabama and Arkansas. And while, yes, you can win the primary without those two states, the longer you go without registering for the primaries at all, the harder it gets to win the primary. The big event we're all watching for is the deadline in New Hampshire at the end of this week. If a candidate does not make that one, it's pretty unlikely they will have a candidacy at all. Though, again, stranger things have happened. There's a link in the show notes near the bottom that lists all the filing deadlines, in case you're curious. And in case you don't want to click on that, long story short, a whole bunch of them are coming up in December. And last up today, a quick item on the Senate impeachment trial. According to a tweet by CNN correspondent Jeff Zelani, quote, Impeachment scheduling alert. Senate Intelligence Chairman Richard Burr says the trial will last for six to eight weeks. It will run for six days a week from 12.30 to 6.30 p.m., a big chunk of time for senators also running for president, hoping to be in Iowa, New Hampshire, or anywhere but D.C. in December slash January slash February, end quote. So you can imagine how complex this might become, and you can also begin your fantasy football predictions about which candidates this might hurt, or maybe help, in those early voting states. Well, that is it for one more episode of the Election Ride Home. I have been your host, Chris Higgins. You can always find me on Twitter, at Chris Higgins. Well, it's been a busy day, to say the least, at Election HQ over here. My first day with a window open playing live testimony on C-SPAN, plus another window with written coverage of it constantly refreshing, plus all the other news. I guess this is the new normal, at least for the next couple of months. On the bright side, I am watching this stuff so you don't have to. I'll keep bringing you highlights, and you just keep hanging in there. As always, thanks for listening, and I will talk to y'all tomorrow.